welcome to the Web Policy Talk podcast recorded live at the Impact and Policy Research Institute Impri New Delhi Namaste and greetings I Mahima Kapoor researcher at Impri Impact and Policy Research Institute Prabhav Evam Niti Anusandhan Sansthan Nayi Delhi extend a warm welcome to you all to the Impri #webpolicytalk Today we have gathered for a distinguished lecture on China's grand strategy as part of the series The State of International Affairs #diplomacydialogue This discussion is being organized by the Impri Center for International Relations and Strategic Studies and delivered by Dr. Rafiq Dosanjh. I'm honored to introduce the speaker Dr. Rafiq Dosanjh. So is the director of the Rand Center for Asia Pacific Policy, a senior economist at the Rand Corporation and a professor at the Pardi Rand Graduate School. He works on education, finance, regional development security trade and technology issues his recent projects include security in the korean peninsula the belt and road initiative track to diplomacy between the united states and china and asia's democratization previously served as director of stanford university's center for south asia and a senior research scholar at stanford university's Institute for International Studies he holds a phd in finance from northwestern university and mba from the indian institute of management calcutta and a ba in economics from st stephen's college delhi we welcome you sir thank you we are fortunate to have major general dr pk chakravarty vsm retired and dr prashant Kumar Singh as the discussants for the session. Dr. P. K. Chakravarty is a strategic thinker on security issues. Welcome, sir. Dr. Prashant Kumar Singh is an associate fellow at Manohar Parikar Institute for Defence Studies and Analysis, New Delhi. Welcome, sir. The deliberation is being moderated by Dr. Simi Mehta. CEO and editorial director at Impri I invite Dr Mehta to take the proceedings further and we look forward to learning from our esteemed gathering thank you good morning and a warm welcome to everyone thank you mahima for leading us into the discussion today a uh, very recently chinese communist party celebrated 100 years of its establishment Xi Jinping the president of China has evoked sentiments of Chinese prowess ever since he has assumed office and specifically so during the centenary celebrations of the CCP he made it clear that China would no longer be subject to any foreign bullying and continue on the unstoppable momentum towards rejuvenation as China continues in its quest for establishing its geopolitical might and influence what are the elements of its grand strategy is it overt strategic thinking articulated by the military or does it also include beijing's diplomatic maneuvers what shapes this grand strategy and what should the 
responses of other major powers, including that of the United States be? How successful might uh, China be at implementing its grand strategy goals over the next two decades? So to understand all these in detail and also beyond, the IMPI Center for International Relations and Strategic Studies is pleased to host this distinguished lecture and welcome Dr. Rafiq Gosani, an expert on the subject who's been studying China for a long time now. We also have with us Major General P.K. Chakrabarti, Dr. Prashant Kumar and Dr. Prashant Kumar Singh, who would be discussing Dr. Dusani's lecture and would be sharing their perspectives. So without taking any more time, I yield the floor to Dr. Dusani. So over to you. Thank you, Simi, for that kind introduction. Thank you, Mahima, also, and thanks to the organizers at Impri. Uh, I have a slight presentation, so maybe you could put that up. Um, so my basic storyline, uh, next slide, please, is that there's a well-defined idea of brand strategy. Uh, the United States in contemporary times is probably the most uh, well-known for its uh, grand strategy. Historically, empires have had grand strategies, including the British Empire. But this focus, focus of this talk will be more contemporary. So I'll be spending a lot of time trying to understand US grand strategy and how it's changed. And then take up the case of China, uh, which is which has been thrust on the stage in a more overt way since uh, Xi Jinping came into office in 2012. So I'll spend a lot of time on China's grand strategy since 2012, uh, how, how US has responded to that, and then derive some conclusions that are broader than just about uh, China and the US. And be for the Q&A and my uh, esteemed discussions, comments uh, to look at uh, topics that might be more of interest to, say, an Indian audience. Uh, so with that, uh, the next slide, please. Yeah, uh, next slide. So defining grand strategy, um, as you can see, it's a national plan to convert a country's priorities and interests into actions with specified resources and associated timelines. Theoretically, the belief is that there should be three characteristics to grand strategy. First, it should advance national security, that is preserve and advance the sovereignty, safety, territorial integrity, and power position of the nation. It's long-term in its thinking. So the second point brings that out. It concerns the evolution and integration of policies that should operate for decades and even for centuries. And third, it should be holistic. It should involve all the resources of the state, including the state's military, diplomatic, technological, and economic resources uh, in, in, in terms of resources, as well as in achieving the broader objectives. So that's a fairly a sort of well-accepted uh, definition. Uh, now, how does it get applied in, in, in the cases that I'm going to raise? Next slide, please. So one of the points I'd like to stress here is that grand strategy depends a lot on the autonomy, the strategic autonomy, the autonomy of a nation to have, uh, to make strategies. You know, in many cases, that autonomy is not there. So a key question that will be asked is how much autonomy does a nation have in determining its grand strategy? Well, the reality is that small and medium powers may not have much autonomy. And in which case the grand strategy of such 
powers must be set in reaction to big power grand strategy. And I have some examples coming up on the right. Uh, the third point is that even big power autonomy is never auto absolute. For example, during the Cold War, the Soviet Union and the US took great account to understand the other's grand strategy uh, before deciding on their own or manifesting their own. So to give you some examples uh, that are not US and China, Japan, you know, there was a period in 1960 to 1985 when Japan's high growth rate after the World War World War II ended, uh, made it uh, look for regional eminence. And what it did was it concentrated on infrastructure, trade, and aid strategies. For example, probably the most famous of these strategies was Japan's promotion of the Asian Development Bank in 1966. And there were many other such initiatives for different purposes. Uh, this uh, was going quite well uh, for Japan, except that the United States wasn't too happy with Japan achieving prominence at its expense. And so one of the things it did was uh, with the Asian Development Bank, ensure that the bank was headquartered in Manila, not in Tokyo, which was a big disappointment to the Japanese. Uh, and then of course, the famous Plaza Accord of 1987, uh, when the US and its allies in Europe insisted that Japan revalue the yen from something like 250 yen to the dollar to about 100 yen to the dollar. So there's a massive, massive upvaluation. And that effectively ended Japan's um, grand strategic ambition because the economy tanked for the next 20 years. So that's an example of a period of high strategic autonomy. An example of low strategic autonomy is South Korea's quest for unification with North Korea after the Korean War ended in 1953, or at least in a truce. Now, Korea, South Korea and North Korea both desired unification, particularly South Korea as it grew wealthier. But this was always subject to the interests of its treaty ally, the United States, which was a more powerful ally than Korea. And so with the US being primarily interested till 1991 with uh, containing the Soviet Union, a country with which uh, the, with North Korea was allied, that effectively ended, uh, stopped South Korea's initiatives for unification. Anything that South Korea would propose would be stopped by the United States on the grounds that it would hurt its uh, bigger quest to end the Cold War. When the Cold War ended in 1992, North Korea realizing that its back was to the wall with China, not a very favorable ally at that point, despite a treaty, uh, began developing its nuclear weapons. And that raised US concerns about weaponization. And, uh, and again, the result on unification between South and North Korea was that the US held it back. So that's an example of a country which was, has not been able to exercise its grand strategy because of low strategic autonomy. Next slide, please. So how does grand strategy manifest itself? It does it primarily through institutions and initiatives. Some examples you can see here. So the institution initiatives, which might be multi multilateral or intergovernmental, or regional or bilateral. They involve diplomatic, economic, technolo technological and military resources. And they seek to achieve, as I mentioned earlier, diplomatic, social and economic welfare and military objectives. 
So some examples are the UN and its agencies, which are multilateral agencies, the WTO, the World Bank, the IMF, which are intergovernmental agencies, the ASEAN and the Quad, which have different levels of formality, of course, but they're regional uh, initiatives. The Belt and Road Initiative, which is both bilateral, such as the CPEC corridor in Pakistan, and regional, such as the Southeast Asia, China rail link. And I'll have a little more to say about the PRI later. And then there could be mutual defense treaties, which are typically bilateral or regional. So for example, the US-Japan Alliance is a bilateral treaty. NATO, Seattle in its old days. Um, these are examples of regional treaties. The US, uh, United States is a champion of treaties. It has treaties with over 50 countries in South America and all, all over the world. Uh, and we can discuss that later if you'd like. And then, of course, there are non-institutional manifestations of grand strategy, which include disaster relief, the famous uh, Iraq war coalition of the willing. They're short-term, they're non-institutional, very purpose-specific. But they too, in a sense, manifest grand strategy, as we've discussed. And just to point out, as the last column does, that resources and objectives may not overlap. For example, the United Nations uses diplomatic, economic, and military resources of countries, but the objectives are diplomatic and social and economic welfare. The by and large, they're not military objectives, even the peacekeeping ones. Um, and we can discuss this more later in the interest of time. Let's move on to the next slide. Okay, I now take up sort of a fairly large case study, that of the United States. Next slide. So between 1945 and till 1991, when the Cold War ended, the United States grand strategy was largely built around institutions of two types. First, it promoted global institutions such as the UN and its agencies to support America's socioeconomic and diplomatic interests. Broadly speaking, these were the market economy, respect for human rights, and in the process, Soviet containment. The institutions of primary focus for diplomatic and social welfare purposes were the United Nations and its agencies. Economic development was addressed through the IMF, World Bank, and the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade, and its successor, the WTO, in 1995. And for influence, the UN rely, US relied on its being the major contributor to the budgets of these institutions and providing political leadership, you know, providing the leadership, for example, the IMF and the World Bank are traditionally headed by either the United States in the case of the World Bank and by a European ally in the case of the IMF. This has been a problem in recent years. It started, the problems began when Japan was becoming prominent and it sought to increase its share in the IMF and the World Bank. Uh, as well as get UN Security Council presence, permanent presence, but was not able to make headway. Then again, when China started growing, it tried to increase its contributions to IMF and World Bank, as well as its share of the UN budget. It's already the second largest contributor, but uh, has not been able to make the kind of headway in some cases. It's done very well in terms of building its influence in the United Nations and its agencies, as we'll discuss later. So that was one prong of the US strategy. The other prong was uh, to meet security interests. You know, the first prong met 
the diplomatic and economic interests, the second prong was to promote regional and bilateral security alliances, such as NATO, the US-Japan Security Treaty, to protect its defense interests. And why did it do not do larger global kinds of alliances for defense? That's really an interesting topic. Uh, one is, of course, the interests of allies in Europe would be very different from allies in Asia, even though there's some convergence these days because of China, but also because of the way the US organized itself for defense. You know, it had a Pacific command, it had a Central Asia command and so on. So, so that was the reason why you didn't see too much of a multilateral global security alliances uh, and even a preference for bilateral over regional, for example, between the US Korea and Japan, the US preferred to ally separately with Korea and with Japan um, on the grounds that it would give it more power dealing with each ally separately than to have the two of them ganging up on it, just as well given the problems of Japan and Korea. Next, next slide, please. Okay, so to summarize uh, Grand Strategy 1945 to 1991, uh, it was largely institutional by the US. It concerned the UN and other global uh, agencies and institutions for social welfare, diplomatic and economic objectives. And then the security side was taken care of by uh, regional and bilateral alliances, as you can see. Next slide. So China started entering the picture as far as the US was concerned first in the 1970s when Nixon's rapprochement with China achieved the objective of China switching sides from the Soviet Union and North Vietnam uh, to the US side in the Vietnam War and generally ceasing to support communist regimes elsewhere such as in Afghanistan. Um, and the price for, for China promised by the UN was permanent membership of the UN Security Council and later de-recognition of Taiwan. So that was the first big one. And then um, so China focused on growth from 1980 onwards, did not do anything that was considered geopolitical. Uh, and so it stayed till about 2001. Uh, and the last big institutional approach where the US supported China was helping China become a member of the World Trade Organization in 2001. And in return, uh, there's always a price to pay. China supported the US's diplomatic and military initiatives in Afghanistan and Korea. Although it, like many other Western countries, including France and Germany, opposed the, the invasion of Iraq. So during this period, all the way from really the 1970, late 70s till 2012, China focused on growth and kept a low geopolitical profile. And this was furthered by a generation of fairly weak political leaders after Deng Xiaoping, for example, Jiang Zemin and Hu Jintao, uh, were considered weak leaders, good at um, building economic capacity, but really not uh, interested in, in the geopolitics, or even regional issues. An example is the South China Sea Islands, or so-called islands in the Spratlys, which consist of about 60 uh, land features uh, or islands and uh, you know China laid claim to them as a successor organization to successor country to Taiwan after it joined the UN Security Council as a permanent member 
uh, and these 60 features were undecided. But meanwhile, Vietnam, uh, Malaysia, Philippines, and Taiwan went on a, a island grabbing spree. You know, currently out of the 60 islands, Vietnam controls 29. Uh, China has, uh, I believe, seven. So, and that those two were all in recent years. So, till Hu Jintao and Jiang Zemin were in power, uh, China really didn't bother about what was happening, even in its own neighborhood, uh, the South China Sea. That changed with uh, Xi Jinping, as we'll come to. And also, the second point is that Chinese grand strategy was largely limited to East and Southeast Asia and focused on economic integration of these regions with China. So in effect, uh, China's strategies did not influence US strategies till 2012. Next slide, please. So between 1992 and 2012, the US was the sole superpower. It tried to use the same approach of its grand strategy that had served it well, but it was less successful than before. I'll show you a slide, the next slide on one indicator of uh, the challenges the US faced, which was the use of the veto. Some, I mean, the forces that emerged really were against each other. There were small states after 1991 that allied with the US very quickly. You know, they said, we're, you know, we don't have any strategic autonomy. We're happy to get out of the Soviet umbrella, typically those in Eastern Europe. However, unexpectedly for middle powers, uh, which had been looking for strategic autonomy, Korea being an example, uh, which had serious issues after World War II with Japan, they, they tried to use this period to develop strategic autonomy to deal with internal, bilateral, and regional issues that had not been possible in the Cold War. Meanwhile, China invested more in multilateral institutions where it is now the UN, where it's the second contributor after the US. The US has 22% and China pays 15% of the budget. But China also invested diplomatic capital. For example, it's the largest provider of arms of, of people to UN peacekeeping initiatives, um, and also the World Bank and the IMF. But still, over this period, the US was able to keep China from exercising significant influence in these institutions. As I mentioned, this, this is in large part because of the weak leadership in China. Next slide. Yeah, here you see the use of the veto. It's quite interesting that if you look at this between 1946 and the present time, you can see the use of the veto uh, by the five permanent members of the Security Council. So till uh, 1991, um, the Soviet Union stroke Russia was the largest user of the veto. And that continued after the Cold War period ended. But look at the change in the US. The US really started the using the veto in a big way from 1970 and uh, continue, has continued being an active user, the second largest user of the veto after the Cold War ended. China, by contrast, hardly used the veto. It used the veto just once pre the Cold War. That was in some matter relating to Bangladesh. Uh, and since then, it's been a more active user of the veto in a variety of uh, circumstances, Syria, Brazil, uh, many, many regions of the world showing its uh, its willingness to exercise global power. And so a change in its interests. And much many of those vetoes are after Xi Jinping came into power. Next slide, please. So 
So what changed US, US perceptions of China since 2012, uh, as I've been hinting all along, the arrival of Xi Jinping as China's leader was accompanied by significant regional and global geopolitical and developmental initiatives by China. Uh, many of you would be aware of Chinese assertiveness in the South China Sea, where it's uh, not only reclaimed more, uh, claimed more land, but also reclaimed more land. Um, and in a way that seems to challenge the interests of uh, the literal countries like Indonesia, Philippines, and so on, Vietnam, of course. Um, this is kind of an interesting topic because really speaking, those islands and their reclaimed features are not worth much. They neither have geopolitical, geoeconomic uh, significance in terms of hydrocarbon or fisheries reserves, nor do, nor do they have military uh, significance. I mean, they're based on reclaimed land. They're far from the Chinese mainland. They're within the exclusive economic zones of some of the other South Asian countries, Southeast Asian countries like Malaysia. Uh, and I easily challenged militarily. Um, in fact, I had the head of PACOM some years ago tell me he could take out all those islands in a day if he wanted to. So, but what you're seeing is increasing challenges to Japan in the East China Sea and in Taiwan across, and to Taiwan across the Taiwan Strait. I mean, from a Chinese point of view, there are explanations, you know, um, whereas Japan argues that it is the the controlling entity of the uh, Senkaku Islands, or what the Chinese call the Daoyu Islands. Um, from a Chinese point of view, that's not the case. In 1982, there had been an agreement between China, Japan, and uh, the United States that uh, these islands would be under Japanese control, but sovereignty would not be decided till a later date. And then oh, President Obama comes in and says, we recognize Japanese sovereignty over these islands, which China then challenged. And one we can discuss later, Taiwan and others. The second thing that happened was the Shanghai Coop Cooperation Organization, which, which was formed before Xi Jinping came in, late 90s. Um, it started becoming very successful as China and Russia came closer and accomplished several diplomatic, economic, and military goals. And of course, now India is a member. And third is the, so the grand Belt and Road Initiative uh, that Xi Jinping uh, promoted to develop infrastructure links between China and partner countries. And I'll have a little more to say about that a little later. The second thing that happened to affect US perceptions was in the unexpected growth of China in the 2000-2010 decade. Already by the 1990s, China had emerged as a champion economic growth case study. But surprisingly, whereas most people expected with its population issues and so on, the, the global integration that the World Trade Organization enabled, membership of that enabled, allowed China to grow at over 10% um, in per annum over this decade. And that gave China unprecedented material power for its ambitions. To give you a, a sort of the, the reason in a sense, if you look at its savings rate, it's currently at 45%, is over three times that of the US, which is around 15% now but actually on a long-term basis, it's much lower than that. But even taking 15%, it's three times. It's, G it's GDP is two thirds of the US PPP adjusted. So it's total new investable capital is actually twice that of the US. So even though the US is a much bigger country economically, if you look at what's available to invest, 
in initiatives like the BRA, the People's Liberation Army, etc. China actually has twice the funds on a PPP adjusted basis than the United States. I did a similar calculation for India and it's at about 25% of the US. Not insignificant and surely could be better deployed, but you can see the gap. And then the next, the third uh, uh, key factor was the unexpected and again unprecedented economic integration of China with East and Southeast Asia since 2000. And this raised economic security risks for the US. Uh, what happened here is that whereas still the year 2000, um, China was integrated in the supply chains of East and Southeast Asia, but it was not uh, uh, a critical piece. It was a large piece, but economically not considered critical. The value add was small. The technology use was basic. That changed dramatically between 2000 and 2010, so that today if China was not a part of this, the chain, there would not just be a quantity effect, there would be a quality, significant quality effect. So that has raised worries, significant worries for the United States. And then finally, of course, to, sometimes it all boils down to domestic politics, you know, saving US manufacturing jobs since the Washington uh, club plan of 2000. This has been a uh, mantra, India suffered from that in 2001 downturn. And now it's China's turn to, to help uh, American, America save its manufacturing jobs. So this is these are what change U.S. perception, saying this is no longer a small issue for us. Next slide, please. So the result was the U.S. invested less in institutions in which China had gained power, particularly the UN and WTO, but also regional groupings such as ASEAN. And the feeling in the U.S. is ASEAN's gone over to the dark side, China. Instead of confronting uh, China through the institutions, it said, let's do it more directly, investing more capital in the Asia Pacific region, uh, particularly with India, Japan, and Taiwan, and reducing its commitment to other areas such as the Middle East, as we most recently saw. The, the result was a reduction in multilateralism and institutional approaches. So moving away from sort of the long-term, somewhat less flexible, uh, institutional approach and its replacement by bilateralism and deals. Next slide, please. Okay, I think enough said on the US, we move on to China's grand strategy now. Uh, next slide, please. So let me just start with a couple of maps, you know, the Belt and Road Initiative, which sometimes doesn't get the press, I think that it should have in India in terms of what it's accomplishing. It is a, an economic and a strategic um, diplomatic challenge to all the countries in the Asia Pacific and India needs to understand that at its, at its peril, in my opinion. So you can see the blue line underneath is a, sort of an ocean going Belt and Road Initiative, which is essentially the building of ports by China. You see one spur ending in Kolkata, uh, that's not quite correct actually, it should be a little to the right there in, in Bangladesh, in uh, Sitwe port in My Myanmar, and uh, uh, and uh, and uh, and Bangladesh, um, but then it goes down to Sri Lanka, where you see it's not just at Hambantota now, but also Colombo, continues to Nairobi, where China is building a port in Mombasa, um, Kenya, and then of course uh, Athens, and uh, several ports are being built in Greece and Italy and Turkey. So interesting that the Belt and Road Initiative, which was designed as a development initiative, is being taken uh, by China to developed countries as well. 
So that's the seafaring route. And then you see on top is the land route, which is the belt. Uh, don't ask me why the sea route is called the road and the land route is called the belt, but that's how it is. Um, so, you know, you can see there it connects up uh, through pipelines, through power lines, through roads, through rail links, um, China with uh, Central Asia and Europe, as, as well as Russia. And th this is not just theory. So next slide will give you an example of what's happening. Next slide, please. So in 2011, there were 17 China-Europe trains which carried goods worth 600 million um, between Xi'an, which you can see in the map on the right side of China, and, um, and Athens, which is in Greece on the left. That's just as an example. The trip time was 30 days, which is exactly the same as it took by ship. And it cost about the same. So it was seen as competitive in those days uh, as well. Of course, much less than air in terms of time. But fast forward to 2020, and those 17 trips have become 12,400, uh, with a, roughly a 50% growth each year for the last few years. The freight carried last year was worth 60 billion. It's a huge increase. And the trip time is now down to 12 days and falling. And, it, and they expect that it will stabilize for freight at around eight or nine days. So at that, at that uh, speed and the low costs, uh, even though the costs have recently gone up after the pandemic, um, but so have they gone up for seafaring freight. China, Europe by rail has become extremely competitive. This has been great for the countries on the way. They're all correct, collecting toll fees you know, in Central Asia. And as they develop, they're developing stops there. They're developing east-west corridors uh, to um, to take advantage of the north-south drift of the Belt and Road. Let me give you another example of this. Next slide, please. So closer to, to the heartland of India, you have the Pan-Asia Railway Network currently being built by China. It consists of three routes. There's a central route that goes through Laos and then meets at Bangkok and goes down to Singapore. There's a western route which connects via Myanmar and then there's an eastern route which connects via, uh, via Vietnam. So note that Vietnam, which is, um, you know, has difficulties in its relations with China, is still a willing partner in these investments. And that's because the two countries have become tightly integrated economically. So this, of course, this thing is just in its early days. I think the most progress has been in the route from Kunming to Laos. Um, the Thai part, because of their recent troubles, has been an issue. Uh, the Malaysia, uh, Kuala Lumpur, Singapore link has been tendered out. Uh, the Chinese will probably win that one as well, since they're willing to fund it. Uh, but they already have the contract for Kuala Lumpur to Bangkok. So here you see uh, something that's happening at very fast. Uh, it's going to be transformative in terms of its effect on economic growth. And it all connects to China. That's the point, you know, you to go from Vientiane in Laos to Bang, to Rangoon in Myanmar, you have to actually go via Kunming, unless later on these countries develop the capacity to build their east-west links. Next slide. Here I wanted to bring out uh, from a Chinese perspective what they are seeing as the US strategy to contain China. 
what you see here is that the first column Clinton rule coincided with Jiang Zemin. It was a period of strategic economic cooperation where Clinton worked very hard to get China into the WTO to enable kind of fair competition on trade. So it was a period of co cooperation. When Bush came in, the war, war on terror began and with Hu Jintao, uh, an era of cooperation on the security side began, particularly uh, China sided with the US, as I mentioned, on key issues, Afghanistan, uh, North Korean nuclearization. And meanwhile, the WTO successfully continued the competition you know, based on rules-based uh, trade. Then comes Obama with Hu Jintao, and for a while it's great while Hu Jintao is there, but then Xi Jinping comes and you can see uh, the beginnings of competition on security sides as well as confrontation uh, on the security side, the East China Sea, as I mentioned. And then, of course, Trump uh, followed by Biden. Biden has assumed uh, Trump's uh, categorization of China as a strategic competitor and named it as chief rival. And under Xi Jinping, you can see that cooperation has, to an extent, happened on North Korea. I don't think it would happen now, given the state of the relationships. But when it comes to the Belt and Road Initiative, the Djibouti base, uh, space, these are areas of competition. And not surprisingly so, I mean, if you look at the Belt and Road Initiative, it's about, uh, it's already spent about 300 billion. It's become the world's largest foreign aid program. And the eras of era of confrontation has become really serious and wide ranging. It covers the East and South China seas, trade and intellectual property, Iran sanctions, Taiwan, Hong Kong, Xinjiang, and the pandemic. In the interest of time, I think these are quite clear. We can come back to that in the Q&A. Next slide. So what changed Chinese perceptions of the US from 2012, from being a partner to being a rival? I remember even till three years ago, I used to regularly get invitations at RAND saying, from the Chinese government saying, let's have a celebration of China, US 40 years of friendship. All that has stopped now for the last two years. Uh, it's even hard to speak to anyone in China from the United States. So the 2012 pivot to East Asia was the starting point. Um, and then the, when the Trans-Pacific Partnership was finalized, it was uh, portrayed by President Obama as an anti-China initiative. He, as he noted, America, not countries like China, will write the rules of the road in the 21st century. And then, of course, more recently under President Trump, the naming of China as a strategic competitor and later as its chief rival. And then the era of sanctions and tariffs uh, to prevent um, access to sensitive technology to protect US jobs. So these have completely changed the perceptions of China about the US, which, which views from its point of view a strategy to contain the contain China as a premium, as the, as the primary goal of American grand strategy. Next slide, please. So I'm almost, almost at the end here. Um, let, let me sort of, I put forward Chinese uh, grand strategy in this, this way, so you can compare it with the US uh, grand strategy at the present time. And you can see the difference between the institutional and the non-institutional. Uh, so to prevent, so China's objective is to prevent containment by the US. It sees countries like Japan, uh, India, uh, Taiwan as being uh, roped into confront the US, uh, confront China on behalf of the US, uh, much as we might 
hope that uh, India has strategic autonomy in these issues from a Chinese point of view. Uh, India has also gone over to the dark side. So, um, so what is the Chinese strategy then? One is it supports existing key global institutions in which it has made inroads, you know, particularly the UN and its agencies such as the WHO, WTO, and ASEAN. It promotes new institutions where it does not find that it can make headway within the US promoted order, for example, AIIB. Although it, it cooperates with the World Bank and others, it's intended as a long-term competitor to these, to the World Bank and the ADB. The BRI, which you discussed, the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, SCO, that should be the Forum on China-Africa Cooperation, RCEP, which even though it's an ASEAN-sponsored initiative, has really been taken forward by China, and the uh, Comprehensive Agreement on Investment, CAI, with Europe. The third problem of the strategy is uh, its formal security arrangements are regional rather than bilateral. And that might reflect that you know it's very hard to make bilateral arrangements. There's very few formal bilateral arrangements on security. And so the fourth one is bilateral security arrangements are mostly informal, example with Russia and Cambodia. It will tactically exploit US weak spots. It sees some desire of Europe to gain strategic autonomy and of Korea. So it will look for openings in that. And it will clarify and support red lines. You've seen what's happened in Hong Kong with the new security law, uh, Chinese uh, actions in the Taiwan Strait, and it would build so soft power through non-institutional support for crises. I mean, I think one of the problems China faces is being a not being a democracy, being an authoritarian state. Um, it's hard for it to build soft power in the, in the usual ways. Um, and the US objective, on the other hand, its grand strategy is to contain China. So it tries to control China's access through to US markets and technology. I think we've discussed that. It promotes US integration into Asian supply chains. Let's see whether that succeeds. I think it's gonna be pretty tough. Renew the pivot to Asia with its Indo-Pacific strategy and focus on China's weak spot, Xinjiang, Hong Kong, Taiwan, the Indian situation, revive Southeast Asia country alliances and partnerships. Uh, currently, you know, it has alliances with uh, Philippines, Singapore, and Thailand, among others. Next slide. Okay, let me wrap up. Next slide, please, with my conclusions. So China's grand strategy has moved from an institution-based socio-economic strategy to institutional and non-institutional diplomatic, socio-economic, and military strategies. The U.S., meanwhile, has moved to less formal strategies. Uh, in some ways, this gives China's strategies longevity, but also less flexibility. You know, if it's institutional, it would want to follow through on that strategy. To help in that process, it is in the process of drawing red lines, and some of which, perhaps including for India, will raise geopolitical and economic risks for other powers. Okay, I think I've spoken enough. I'll be uh, very glad to hand over to my discussant at this stage and later take questions. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, sir. Very, very informative. And thank you for this wonderful presentation. So I would invite uh, Major General Dr. P.K. Chakravarti to make uh, his uh, comments first. Sir, over to you. Uh, thank you very much, Simi. Thank you. Thank you very much, Simi. I must firstly thank Dr. Rafik Dasani for 
beautiful presentation. And not only that, he was extremely kind in giving us the slides a day before, which allowed us to really know what he's going to speak. I'm extremely grateful to you to understand. And I must say, it was an excellent talk by all standards. When you look at his origin in St. Stephen's College, where my own son was, and he today is an assistant professor in the United States at College Station. I find a lot of similarities between him and Dr. Dasani. Well, notwithstanding that, I must say that I'm, though having a PhD, I'm more of a practitioner. And being a practitioner, I've served three years in Vietnam, which was possibly, and these were years 1996 to 1999. If you take these years, Deng Xiaoping just passed away. And Zeng Zamin, he spoke about it. And then I went along with the United States Defense Service to every battlefield where the US and Vietnam fought. Believe me, the US won all battles. The United States military wins all battles, but they lost the war. Well, on Sunday, I don't think anybody, including uh, President Biden, or me, even sir? the director of the CIA. Sir, uh, uh, really sorry yeah. to interrupt. If you could just adjust your uh, headphones for a bit, because uh, there's some noise coming when you're speaking. Uh, All right. Okay, I'll remove them. Just... I'll remove them then. Yeah, this is much better, sir. Now it's yes, clear? Yes. Thank you. This is much better, sir. Okay, I've removed the headphones. The headphones were basically to hear others. Now you can hear? Okay, I'll now proceed. Now, coming into the nuts and bolts of grand strategy, I must firstly confess India does not have even a national security strategy. It's known to all of you. And often we have tried to what you call state that we must have something. So the point made out, the definition is that a grand strategy must last continuously. Believe me, it's not possible. And Dr. Dasani's lecture itself brings out very, very clearly, the U.S. still continues to be the sole superpower. If it continues to be the sole superpower, how do we deal with it? The only way to deal with it is an asymmetric means. And when you come to dealing with asymmetric, you have to result to subconventional warfare. You've got to result in discussions which necessarily does not have to be respected. I have met Zalmay Khalzad, who has been negotiating for the United States right now, and even for many years with the Taliban at Doha. Now, believe me, you can't take everybody by academic rules. As a military man, I have always learned not all treaties are respected, not all alliances are going to occur as they happen. And lastly, please don't set any deadlines. Like today, we set a deadline the 31st August, everybody will leave, the United States will leave Afghanistan. Having been somebody who has been into, I need to say, insurgency and been fighting insurgents, let me put it to you, I have made it very clear to many U.S. generals, 
to many diplomats, to many academics who visited India to get into the headlines is to put a, what you call an issue which you can never, never undergo. Grand strategies are nice, but they need review. Believe me, they need review by the day. Now today, Biden says by 31st August, we are going to get everybody out of Afghanistan. As a military man, let me see one military person. I've just to hear Fox News on United States and you'll get the answer what the Americans are thinking. Believe me, things are not so easy, particularly when it comes to execution on ground. Grand strategies must lead to correct executions. And today, the warfare, there's nothing tactical. Everything is strategic. Everything has become strategic. There's nothing operational. There's nothing because today, an ant can go and trouble an elephant. So therefore, the Taliban agrees on an issue. You build up a force whom the United States and the president calls even I remember talking to one of the British generals and he was posted in Iraq that what will happen, and even General David Petrus, that what will happen when you leave is that this force will collapse. Strategy has to be related to the fighting capability. Believe me, the first point of the grand strategy is security. And when you come to security, what is the fighting capability? I carried out an analysis, and when I was in Vietnam with the U.S. Defense Attaché, fighting capabilities in the Asia lies with China, with Japan, Vietnam, India, Pakistan. No doubt, Kamala Harris is today in Vietnam, and she would be visit. She has already visited Singapore, and she is on her way to Vietnam. The next issue I'd like to say is autonomy. Uh, we all talk of strategic autonomy. Let me tell you, nobody is autonomous. You may have a lot of power. What do you do? Today, if the Taliban doesn't allow the Americans to get from Kabul city or from Herat to Kabul airport, what does the United States do? Are you going to launch another offensive? Is NATO planning another offensive? So your entire strategies become dependent. And warfare today with subconventional and asymmetric things, autonomy has become a big question mark. I'm just giving today just for one thing. 1971, India encountered Pakistan in so-called East Pakistan. We had to sign a treaty with the Soviet Union. And look at what the United States UK did. Nixon Kissinger wanted the Seventh Fleet to move in. The US strategy was certainly not for us. And definitely we had to depend on then the Soviet Union for it. So grand strategy, could we continue the grand strategy? 93,000 prisoners we had to hand over. So next I want to come to Quad. Uh, Dr. Dasania, you said Quad is a diplomatic and a military alliance. I'm afraid as on date is a diplomatic alliance. It or shall we put it a diplomatic dialogue? It's not an alliance, you certainly didn't say it's an alliance, but militarily, Quad as on date has nothing. Yes, we have had Quad meetings at various levels, but we are diplomatic. Moment you get the military in, 
and now I'll come in. The military is a separate issue. And please understand, Japan was captured militarily. Korea exists today because of military issues. The Taliban has entered because of military issues. Diplomacy possibly was when the British ruled the world. I'm afraid that diplomacy by itself just does not work. Smart power is the answer. Smart power also requires hard power. I've spoken about asymmetric warfare. Now I'll come to the South China Sea. It pointed out that South China Sea has got no importance. Now, believe me, China's biggest problem is that China, China today realizes if it has to, what you call, militarily act, the Chinese Navy has to move firstly to the Western Pacific, and next they have to move to the Indian Ocean. Unlike India, which has great open seas, you know, for it to move to the Indian Ocean, China is today has to make sure that the islands in the South China Sea don't prevent the Chinese Navy from moving into the region which would what you call allow it or give it the freedom of maneuver to be in ports which he brought out. I just correct that there's no port in Bangladesh as here, it's Kyakfo, which is in Myanmar or sits in, which is close to Sitaway. And Sonandia in Chittagong was supposed to be given to the Chinese. A lot of problems are taking place, but definitely Sri Lanka, Hamantota, as well as Colombo have landed up with the Chinese. And we have luckily still holding on to Maldives. We have Djibouti and China definitely in a big way is already in the Indian Ocean with water possibly going to be a sea command for the Chinese. Now, who are the countries? What is China's grand strategy militarily when you look at it? It is focused on a few very important countries. First, North Korea. Second, as you brought up, possibly Cambodia. Well, Cambodia is a very, very small country. And third is Pakistan. Now, Pakistan is very strategically located. Today, with Gwadar coming in, Today, with India losing its what you call clout in Afghanistan and possibly even not having Chabar to what you call act as a counter, the grand strategy of the US and this region needs a drastic takeover. Now, the next I would like to talk about the EC and the discussions which he had with the PACOM that in one day he can take over all the South China Sea Islands. Uh, I would like to place a, a million dollar bet with PACOM to please come and take over these islands in one day. The aircraft carriers have been moving around. It's very nice to hear PACOM commander. I, when I questioned them, they told me the best forces in Asia today are the Afghan forces. And what is the American way of forces? Give equipment, Black Hawk helicopters, A-29 fighters, the best Please, being a soldier, believe me, the best weapon is the human being. You play the Indian army against the Taliban. Let me see the Taliban capture even one millimeter. Please, because the whole issue of fighting or combat is how you can die. You can give a lot of your weapons. You can bring in artificial intelligence. I write on all these subjects. But believe me, we have seen Vietnam. We have seen Iraq. 
we have seen now Afghanistan, three clear examples, and we have seen how the grand strategy of the United States needs coast collection. Next, the United States lays its belief, Nixon goes, Pakistan helps for a meeting with China, and the Kissinger and the Chinese enable the Chinese to switch sides. Russia is the greatest achievement of the United States that the Soviet Union breaks up. It's a great achievement for Andy Marshall, for all the grand strategists. But I would put it very clearly, it doesn't mean that Russia is out of the box. Russia is today in Afghanistan, and so are China, and so are many other countries which are feeding the Taliban. Another thing I want to say in your grand strategy, the U.S. applies sanctions, which he has not talked of. Sanctions were applied against India. I've often said the more sanctions you apply, the more you make that country firm because he starts then asserting. I was asked the other day, will Taliban run or short of money? I said, Taliban will receive more and more money if you apply sanctions. And I don't have the time because I think I'm already you know, on the other side of time to say something. BRI. I think the BRI, the Chinese thought it would be a big thing and Xi Jinping thought that it would be something which is great. There are big questions which are rising within China about the success of the BRI. You can have railway lines going to Europe. They are possibly planning a railway line under the Pacific, which would be going and which will be connecting to the Canada or to Mexico. Now, all these could be great. But if you think you have conquered Europe by the railway lines, or if you have conquered what you call by some sea routes, I assure you that in today's subconscious warfare, these are issues which need serious thinking, serious discussion. I think that to this extent, the United States has rightly focused back on B3W, which is nothing but the extension of the TPP and also showing its presence into what these regions of Southeast Asia were. Now, I would talk about Zeng Zamin and Hu Jintao. They were not weak leaders. Zeng Zamin, as a matter of fact, is the first man who got the People's Liberation Army under control. He stopped all their business, he stopped all issues, and he was very intelligent. And he's an intelligent even today. Even in the Politburo meetings, which I very closely follow, Zeng Zamin is there. Hu Jintao was certainly weak and could not. As far as Xi Jinping is concerned, very powerful, very assertive. Let's see how long he lasts. Because don't forget, the Chinese are not the same which were there under Mao. Having visited China and having traveled on the railway, which is said from Kunming, I've traveled to Hanoi, actually, I can tell you one thing, the Chinese people themselves won't allow things to happen. A small issue. At the IDSA, before Dr. Prashant Singh, the Chinese scholars had come once. I said, well, Xi Jinping now today is going to be a ruler for life. I think he can sort out the Indochina problem straight away. The professor gave me an answer. It's not that easy. So what we need is possibly much deeper intelligence, much greater issues, 
and please don't believe what you sign don't believe what a person tells you in doha these are meant for consumption over cookies and tea i think the americans must not exit bagram the way they existed and leave one a field for the entire american population to exist same thing happened in south vietnam i mean so i don't want to repeat all these issues and similar thing happened with the exit in iraq now therefore why have a grand strategy when you really cannot execute it the first thing in grand strategy according to me is unpredictability and next is don't believe anyone unless there's definite evidence military men are not professors they are not academics those who are people from the taliban or from other areas who are irregular forces don't have any principles it's always better to err on the other side lastly alliances in today's world are going to be all informal as you correctly brought out and therefore the united states definitely needs to review its grand strategy there needs to be a greater interaction with possibly countries like india who are fighting militants every day who are dealing with problems the beauty of the united states is it has no threat to its own borders it has no threat so it has to imagine what is happening and therefore unless you get into these issues unless your people from the various people involved with us i am afraid you will continue to trust pakistan you will continue to trust uh, irregular forces and you will find that you would be going grossly out thank you very much thank you sir for raising very pertinent points thank you so i would now invite dr prashant kumar singh to make his remarks sir can you hear me yes sir clear i thank impri for inviting me as a discussant to this wonderful talk and first at the outset let me congratulate dr dosani for his clear and very scholarly articulation on grand strategy and let me also thank for for providing his ppt powerpoint presentation to us very in advance and my comment general comments and one or two queries are restricted to his presentation only dr dosani has explained the de definitional aspects of grand strategy and what all constitutes a grand strategy and what it strives to achieve very lucidly very clearly he is right that strategic autonomy in grand strategy is not is not absolute never absolute either for small powers for middle powers or even for super, super powers and as for super powers among other things their grand strategies are mainly shaped or one can even say constrained by their rivals and this kind we can see even in india's relations of course we are we are not in the category of superpower but we can see this in our relations with pakistan china and with our our neighbors and during the cold war period it was the us and the ussr that shaped or constrained each other's choices and dr dosani has given an overview of both the us as well as china's chinese grand strategies and explained how these two strategies rival strategic rivals of our time are forcing to adjust each other's grand strategy the arrival of xi jinping as china's leader and his aggressive and nationalistic policies 
were only an inflection point. Otherwise, American disappointment with China had begun much before him. Dr. Dosani has correctly identified that the unexpected high economic growth of China and its unprecedented economic integration with Southeast Asia and East Asia in the first decade of this century posed an economic security risk to the US and its preeminence in the Asia Pacific. Americans had also begun feeling the pinch of losing manufacturing jobs to China. And around 2008, China starting asserting itself in the strategic realm, basically in South China Sea, East China Sea, and projecting its power, power in the sense that the anti-satellite test missile and sending signals that it has global interests by sending its carrier task force, sorry, this patrolling, patrolling task force to the Gulf of Eden and they started reaching out various regions in the world. So this is in this backdrop. Sometime around 2009, a disappointment with the failure of Nixon-Kissinger perception, what I call Nixon-Kissinger perception on China, that its economic and institutional integration with the world would lead to its democratization emerged in the US. The pivot to Asia policy of 2011 or 12 was the manifestation of this disappointment and response to the challenge posed by China. And since then, the elite opinion across the spectrum in the US has only coalesced against China. And the Xi Jinping era in China has only seen the intensification of American disappointment. What has struck me most in Dr. Dosani's exposition on the interaction between US and Chinese brand strategies is that China was actually a beneficiary of US institutional approach from 1971 when it replaced Taiwan or the ROC in the United Nations and to 2001 when it acceded to the WTO under American patronage. However, as China's economic rise exceeded the US expectations and began posing to challenge to its economic position and other factors that, that, that just I have mentioned, the US reduced its commitment for institutions. Whether the reduction in US commitments was a well thought out decision as a response to China's rise or a knee-jerk reaction or an unrelated independent development is not clear. Dr. Dosani informs that President Obama noted in 2015 that it was America, no, President Obama noted and stated in 2015 that it was America, not countries like China, who would write the rules of the road in the 21st century. However, the question remains, how it would do so without investing in multilateral institutions? In his comparison between China and the US, grand, Chinese and the US grand strategies, Dr. Dosani underscores that China appears as a supporter of the existing global institutions in which middle powers are seeking strategic autonomy from the US. It basically, he means China appears as a promoter of new institutions and regional initiatives of global and regional significance for economic cooperation. And more importantly, its bilateral security arrangement, arrangements are mostly informal. It has invested more in regional security architecture for formal arrangements like SEO. And in contrast, the US has invested less in institutions like 
the UN and WTO, and also in regional groupings such as ASEAN after 2012. It seems that the US is not able to compete with China there. It has invested more in bilateral relations or deals, the term Dr. Dosan uses at least in the PPT, with major countries such as Japan and India, who share its discomfort with China. And it has renewed pivot to Asia via Indo-Pacific strategy. Here, just, just uh, I would like to seek a clarification because in India, we for us, Indo-Pacific is not a strategy or military, military strategy or security strategy. We see it as a natural regional process. So many processes are already underway uh, and so many other processes we envisage. So we have a difference um, of view about Indo-Pacific with the US. So here I would like to just ask Dr. Dosani what is his view, whether he considers it as a, a, a strategy or, and also whether American view has also evolved, uh, has also evolved because some writers say that American view on the Indo-Pacific has evolved. But coming back to the point uh, that, Dr. Tishan, that yes. if you could also uh, just mention the questions that you have for uh, yeah, I, 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 I have mentioned the question in my... Okay, sir. <laughs> so coming back to this point, it is renewed to pivot to Asia via Indo-Pacific strategy. And the US investment in alternative supply chains that aim that aims long-term decoupling from China can also be considered as part of a containment plan towards China. So in this summation, what Dr. Dosani has given the comparison of these grand strategies, honestly speaking, China looks on a higher normative pedestal and more natural leader-like, whereas the US looks more a challenger and preoccupied with containing China. So, but Dr. Dosani points out that the 2012 pivot to Asia policy started the period of a more adversarial attitude towards China, who was later named as a strategic competitor in 2017 and was identified as a chief, America's chief rival. And eventually its approach has moved, moved towards confrontation. Yet his conclusion is that Chinese, China's actions are less flexible and some of which will raise geopolitical and economic risk for other powers. So here I expect a little, a little bit more elaboration from him because the objective of China's grand strategy as highlighted by him and the normative setting of these objectives as drawn by him do not lead to this con conclusion naturally. Instead, many would feel that it is actually the US that is indulging in provocations and uncomfortable with, with China, China's rise. So here I would also add, perhaps we need to focus a bit more on countries beyond the US, Japan, India, and Australia to understand how other countries in the world, in Africa, in Latin America, in Central Asia, and in other regions, basically Southeast Asia, are perceiving China's rise. Because not only about the normative part, which I have highlighted from his PPT only, is the transformative nature of his infrastructure and economic initiatives. What is the, how that is being seen in the, in, in the, in the regions? We have to see that how the world is seeing who is the challenger now and who is the natural leader. So maybe that will help us to understand American reluctance to invest in multilateral institutions. So these are my comments on Dr. Dosani's presentation, general comments, and a queries which I have made, made implicit in this, these comments as a discussion. And thanks for inviting me. Thank you very much. Very clearly you have uh, pointed out. Thank you very much, sir. Uh, so now, uh, Dr. Dosani, uh, with your permission, we could move to the questions so that you could just uh, take them collectively and respond. So the first question is, um, 
how the developing countries of South Asia should move ahead with India and China in changed circumstances on the global regimes of uh, East. Uh, this is by Dr. Sigdal. There's a question by Ashish Merchant. Um, who says perhaps uh, we could have um, the panel's perspective on uh, India's advantages or trade-offs on one, the remaining non-alignment, aligning deeper with China, example like uh, on the BRI, aligning deeper with the US, which means that more risks uh, with, with China. There's a question by Hun Ming who says that China is soon taking over the gradual withdrawal of the US across the world, all across the world. Uh, what does your analysis say? Is it this, I mean, I think this is about the vacuum uh, that is being presented by the US and China is taking advantage of it. Uh, there's a question by Sujata ma'am, Sujata Puranik. Uh, she asks, uh, what is your estimation uh, about the likely economic implications of BRI on India? And about nationalism, uh, aren't all the countries and their governments successful if they pursue an inward-looking strategies and nationalism? The US is doing it, India is doing it. So why should China's nationalism be a cause of concern to others, uh, meaning I think other countries? So, sir, over to you. Uh, thank you for all those. Uh interesting questions maybe later on i can address uh, my discussions question but let me try and address the audience's uh, questions so the first question from dr sigdal is that uh, how should the developing countries of south asia move ahead with india and china in the changing circumstances of global regimes of the east um so i think there are two parts to that one is the part that is that China's rise uh, and India's rise also, but not as much. And then the recent events uh, in the Middle East, I assume Afghanistan is on your mind. Uh, I think, um, you know, for countries that have sort of cast their lot with, uh, with China, for example, Pakistan, uh, it's, they will follow the lead of uh, China in, uh, in this and China's has two issues with Afghanistan. One is, you know, it would like to invest in Afghanistan and bring the Belt and Road Initiative there. But it's also very concerned about the movement of terrorism from Afghanistan to via Central Asia or even more directly into China. Being able to manage those two is a difficult task, um, was a difficult task even when Afghanistan had a more moderate government under Ashraf Ghani and Karzai. Uh, I think it will be a far bigger challenge now. So the, the, what South Asian countries will have to do is uh, those that have flexibility, those that have not clearly aligned themselves with one or the other, um, will, will be able to, I think, play off one against the other. But in a sense, they are marginal players. Let's face it, you know, just as Afghanistan itself is, uh, from a global point of view, a fairly marginal country. I mean, obviously that doesn't sit well with an Afghan. But, uh, you know, uh, I don't think the export of terrorism is going to be a priority for the Taliban at this point. Governance is, you know, that's what's been in short supply in Afghanistan now for several decades. Fixing that is going to be their challenge. And 
I, I doubt that there will be much uh, export of terrorism, at least for the near term, but it'll have to be watched. Let me move on to Ashish Merchant's question about um, what are India's advantages and trade-offs of remaining non-aligned, aligning deeper with China, aligning more deeply with the US. As I mentioned in my talk, I think from a Chinese point of view, India's made that decision and it's aligned with the US. Uh, and I think the Doklam and the Ladakh uh, uh, you know, issues that came up, the Chinese incursions there, uh, reflect that revision, or, you know, the revision in the Chinese perception, which was different up to the Wuhan dialogue, which changed completely in the next few years. So I really think that uh, India, uh, in its present trajectory, doesn't have much of a choice. Uh, but to go with the United States and uh, and hope that the U.S. Uh, is able to provide the kind of leadership that it needs. Uh, the big worry, of course, for India is that by the more it does so, the less autonomy it has. You know, so if China then decides to have another incursion into on into Indian borders, uh, there's very little that the U.S. is going to do about that, and the and India will be on its own. And we saw what happened in the last one, so. So I think you know India has no choice at this point, but it's on a path that's pretty risky and steering the ship the other direction is unfortunately doesn't seem to be a choice. Um, you know, it's quite unlike uh, countries in Central Asia, for example, uh, like Kazakhstan, which have been able to play the game quite well by refusing to align, by displaying um, their independence in various respects, even countries in Africa, which have done so quite well. Uh, particularly in East Africa. Okay, what does uh, Mr. Hun Ming ask? So China is soon taking over with the gradual withdrawal of the US uh, all across the world. What does your analysis say? You know, I, I think the story of US decline is overstated uh, in terms of technological strength, which is a big driver of future material power. Um, the US remains unparalleled. I think the risk is that if you know by by putting all these sanctions and so on, it's kind of a gift to China because it will have to catch up, as one of my discussions also mentioned, and it's doing so. It has the capital to invest heavily in um, in catching up, and it will do so. And that's why this dual circulation concept came up. Uh, a recognition, in fact, that uh, the local economy is going to drive growth henceforth. So, but so that said, I think the U.S. doesn't want to withdraw. Uh, China, I think, has limited ambitions to be safe in first in Asia, while continuing to integrate uh, globally, uh, and uh, and it has its red lines. Uh, from an Indian perspective, the red lines seem to be being drawn quite sharply in a way that makes India uncomfortable. But I would say we're we're very far from the situation where the U.S. is giving up, notwithstanding what uh, people, you know, you often see articles in Chinese media saying the U.S. is on a decline. And then they point to Afghanistan as an example. Um, the U.S. has this capacity to readjust very quickly. Let's see. I mean, I think that the worry is the non-institutional mode that it's getting into right now. Okay, let's move on to Sujata's question. Uh, what is your estimation? What in your estimation is going to be the likely economic impact of the BRI in India? Well, India stayed off the BRI, decided not to join, mainly because of China, of course, one reason, but also the 
the design of the BRI in Pakistan goes through territory that's claimed by India. Uh, so India is going to miss out on the BRI. And um, as I provided some examples for the railway, but there are hundreds of such examples, which I didn't give. I've written a whole paper on the impact of the BRI, you know, in Kenya, for example, and how it's changing tourism supply chains with the construction of the standard gauge railway. Um, oh. So, so, you know, um, my, my estimation is that the BRI is going to be transformative. It's already shown that in East Africa, it's shown that in Sri Lanka to an extent, it's shown that in South America to a large extent. You know, for example, Uruguay, uh, just one random example, two thirds of its power capacity now comes from BRI projects. Pakistan, country that was power deficit chronically is now a power surplus country because of the BRI. So these are transformative changes. So India is missing out on that. But again, I think India doesn't really have a choice. There are strategic elements to the BRI that force you to link up with China that India would find impossible to accept at this stage. Okay, let's go on to the last one. Aren't all countries and the government successful if they pursue an inward nationalism? The US is doing it. India is doing it. What's wrong with China being nationalistic? You know, as uh, you know, the eminent Dr. Shiv Shankar Menon has pointed out, um, Many countries are revisionist. They're all revising their uh, approach to the world. And many of those revisionists, re revisionisms are based on nationalism rising. My own view is nationalism is probably the biggest curse in the world that it's going through. But it's true that it's happening. It's happening in China. It's happening in India. It's happening in the United States. Uh, and I think what that does is create significant risk for the rest of the world. With this inward look means that you no longer understand the values of globalization, you know, pluralism, and so on. Um, and in a sense, I think China is, because of its global outlook on trade, is, is somewhat less nationalistic than others. So, so let's see how that plays out. Um, I think that answers the question, Simi. Are there any yes. others? Uh, yes. So, so if you want to respond to the discussant's questions, and if there is some time, one minute, I could present one question to you. Yeah, you have three minutes left and many discussant questions. Um, yeah, let me just take um, a couple of one. One is that Dr. Uh, uh, Major General Chakravarti raised the issue of the BR. I think discussed that. I found his presentation about the military issues and the importance of people to be really, really important and interesting, um, as well as his concerns about Autonomy. He correctly pointed out that the Quad is uh, not a formal initiative. It was started as a quadrilateral security dialogue, but it seems to be expanding its scope. So that's why I put it there, but I didn't really classify it as formal. Um, Dr. Prashant raised the issue of um, you know, what are the challenges uh, to China? Who is challenging China? What, is, what, is the re what are the regional strategies that can uh, challenge China? I think Japan is the key one. It has military power, as Major Chakravarti pointed out. Uh, it has uh, it has an antagonism towards uh, that's you know towards China that's deep rooted in social and cultural issues. Uh, it's an ally of the U.S. I think the main thing that's preventing Japan from being more aggressive about China is its own internal economy, which is so closely tied up with. Uh, with China that Japanese business people are pushing hard on Japanese foreign policy makers saying, go slow on your policy. 
of confronting China. So if you look at who can challenge China, I think Japan is one. Vietnam, as General Chakravarti pointed out, has capacity to challenge China. But again, these are mixed, you know. I mean, Vietnam and China are so tightly integrated now economically. And as I pointed out in the Belt and Road in Southeast Asia, you know, there's a railway line that China is building in Vietnam, conducting, uh, connecting Kunming to down to all the way through through Vietnam into Kuala Lumpur. So, you know, challenging China is not going to be easy. I think the only one that can do it really successfully, if at all, is the United States. So let me stop there. And uh, in the interest of time, it's already yes. 12 o'clock. Yes. Okay, thank you so much, sir. Thank you for those uh, responses. Um, Dr. Arjun, if you want to come uh, and uh, have your... Dr. Arjun has just one mm -hmm. quick question for you. Yes, uh, very nice analysis. Uh, one thing uh, really pertaining to the economic cycles, we know in US every decade or so there is, you know, the economic cycles, troughs and recession. Uh, how do you think that as a phenomena, but more particularly the role of uh, subprime lending crisis in 2008, which extended till 12. And after that, <clears throat> China is also looking very inward uh, for economic stability. What would be the role of these economic cycles uh, in your assessment for the China's grand plan. And one another question I, I really wanted to ask that uh, there is also dearth of economic confidence as also uh, eluded by US and other countries regarding China's economic and technological progress. Uh, also for infrastructure also, there is uh, a lot of things uh, people say about ghost towns or the feasibility of any of the BRI project, for example, port and others. How do you see this phenomena? And lastly, uh, Chinese people also focus a lot on culture. And one term which, uh, which comes again and again, it's that of century of humiliation. How do you see this as a role pushing China in its grand plan from the Chinese people? All good questions. Uh, cycles, confidence, and culture, the three C's you have raised. Uh, you know, if you look at economic cycles, China hasn't really had one the, for many, many years. The global economic crisis of, uh, of 2007 8 uh, was fairly short lived even within the United States. And I think a lot of the credit goes to globalization. You know, it, it enabled countries to work together to sort things out, both for financial flows as well as economic activity. So my sense is uh, the US is much more likely to go through economic cycles than China, at least in the near term. Um, although China's population growth is slowing, uh, there's enough slack in the system in terms of agricultural population that can move to industry uh, the gender imbalance in the workforce, that's a huge benefit to China coming up, that, uh, that China will continue to grow for many more years to come. Uh, so I, I'm not seeing cycles as a big issue. In terms of confidence, uh, or confidence of the US in Chinese technology and Chinese systems, it's very low. There's a feeling that everything China does has dual purpose and uh, can be exploited by the military for exposing holes in other people's communication systems, water dams, so, you know, et cetera, et cetera. I don't know how to address that. I mean, I think it's impossible because there's opacity in these things. We don't really know the situation in China, and but all we know is that the U.S. is basing it there uh, 
allegations on something, you know, for example, the, the issue of IP theft. IP theft was labeled by a US House Commission as being about $500 billion a year, uh, which, you know, is absurd, absurd. You know, I went into the numbers uh, jointly with Jeffrey Sachs, who's an eminent economist. Um, and we agreed that the number was no more than 30 billion a year. And yet the US sticks with that number because it's politically more appealing than $30 billion a year. I don't know how to address this issue because obviously there's truth in theft about IP theft from China. But until you get on a scale, proper scale, how do you address it is very difficult. And the same applies to the pandemic origins issue. And finally, the question of culture, this hundred years century of humiliation, I think you know, these are things that are used by leadership very well, you know, to, to build a certain narrative to get gain domestic support. And just like Japan has done so with regard to you know, its uh, role in World War II and earlier as an imperial nation, uh, sometimes the narrative succeeds, uh, sometimes it fails. Uh, I think so, you know, certainly China, certainly Korea and Japan don't see eye to eye on many things because of this uh, legacy of World War II. And China, likewise, I think, has used the century of humiliation. But that said, I would imagine, I would argue that most nations are pragmatic and look at, you know, things on a current basis and a future basis rather than on a past basis. So that's why China had no hesitation sending troops into Vietnam to support the US uh, when it switched sides and over 100,000 troops went. Um, so, you know, I think nations are pragmatic and that's not an issue. Thanks. Great. Thank you, sir. Uh, very interesting points and uh, questions that have been raised. And uh, definitely uh, this leads to much more in-depth understanding and uh, discussion from all the scholars who have and uh, all the all those who have attended this and would be watching us later so now i yeah uh, so you're getting a lot of uh, uh, congratulatory messages about your excellent presentation thank you sir so uh, i would now like to propose the formal vote of thanks on behalf of uh, impri center for international relations and strategic studies to our uh, distinguished speaker, Dr. Rafiq Dosani, for having uh, spared his time and spoken about China's grand strategy. This is so illuminating. And for all of us in the interested in the field, um, I would also like to thank our discussants, Major General Dr. P.K. Chakravarti, and also uh, to Dr. Prashant Kumar Singh for uh, having accepted our invitation and joined us this morning. All the participants, who have watched us here on Zoom and also on Facebook Live. Thank you very much for your excellent questions. And thank you to all those who will be uh, listening to us on our podcasts and also watching us on um, YouTube later. So thank you and I wish you all a very good day. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Bye-bye.